0: I'll go first.
1: Catch me when I fall.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh-oh. I'll do it that way.
1: Charming. I might have to use that, you know. <laughs> hey, go <on>. <laughs> <laughs> on. There you go Hang on, hang on, you have to hold me. It's very slippy.
0: My name is Eric, you go. Keep going. and I'm a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. It's a topic that most people just don't want to know about.
1: Eric is the father of my oldest son. I've known him for more than half my life.
0: I can take you out to see Wombat Rock. (laughs) How about that? Some days I have a lot of trouble walking out my front door. 150 metres along this flat section. Some days I can't face getting out of bed. The easiest way is to just identify where the wallaby tracks are. I go into panic at the thought of having to go to town. Or talk with people.
1: How can you tell? I can't see anything but leaves.
0: Well there's just a slight track there. Yep. Oh my gosh. And some nights I'm too afraid to go back to bed. You've got to crouch down under branches but um, you generally follow that light, light track through the leaf litter.
1: Eric and I met when we were 20. We were stupidly in love and and anything felt possible. So when I unexpectedly fell pregnant during the final year of my journalism degree, Having a baby felt possible too.
0: The day I arrived here, I um, went for a quick walk off into the what I call the Queen's Place, the Crown Land. And uh, see that rock over there? Oh. That was the first rock I walked to. And at the base of that rock is a rock that looks like a wombat.
1: Eric's always loved wombats. We once accidentally killed one driving on a country road late at night and the wound is still raw. And that's one of the things I've always loved about Eric, his sensitivity. We'd talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and with a naive certainty of first love and youth, I thought I knew everything there was to know about him. I didn't.
0: I was eight years old when I encountered my first sexual perpetrator and over the next eight years I encountered... Seven older males who abused me sexually. I experienced a storm of abuse. The storm of abuse has affected every single area of my life. Spiritually, I come from a long line of devout Catholic stock. I still have surviving clergy as my relatives. My mother has studied her entire life in the Catholic Church as did my late father. I was raised having a relationship with my God and learning all of those nice Christian ethics. And then a storm of sexual abuse gave me a very different view of the world and of God. (sighs) Physically, probably the most obvious and traumatic effect I've experienced is 12 or 13 kidney stones... Kidney stones are very painful (laughs) and are associated with my long-standing sugar addiction. Out of my budget, I spend about $100 a week on tobacco and $50 a week on what I call sugary goodness. My addictions have cost a lot more than that previously. (laughs) During my teenage years, I was eating up to 20 Mars bars a day and spooning or throwing sugar in my mouth whenever I could. It's rotted my teeth. It sounds strange, but it's probably the worst drug that I've ever had as far as impact on me. I've also been smoking since I was nine years old, daily since I was 12. On a mental level, sometimes in my life I am mental, (laughs) if I'm allowed to say that. And sometimes in my life, I am very organised and quite aware. I guess you'd say I'm a thinking man. I think a lot.
2: (laughs)
1: Eric moved back to his hometown in 2010 to look after his ageing parents. The day he got back, the front page of the local paper had a picture of one of his abusers receiving an award for community service. He was still working with children. It was then Eric decided to start The Project, to come out about the extent of his abuse to family and friends, to report it to police, to seek counselling to deal with his trauma and eventually to write a submission to the Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse. He thought the process would take about six months. It's been almost five years.
0: Well, I, uh, I live outside a very small village, reasonably isolated. I have two acres backing on to crown land and bush and a uh, five-bedroom, two-storey house at lock-up stage. Rough. So, yeah, so the house has been built, but I need to finish off the inside, put up walls and ceilings, that sort of thing.
1: So there's no electricity, no running water, no toilets, no showers.
0: Yeah. I imagine it's extremely hard for a princess like yourself. (laughs) shut up. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're doing well. Yeah, so I I love where I live. It's uh, peaceful and quiet. I've got a a rainbow of birds that fly around the house and 20 or 30 wallabies and kangaroos that come and visit every afternoon. And I don't have a uh, washing machine. I don't have neighbours or a shopping centre where I have to present myself <laughs> as a clean and tidy and respectable person. And the wallabies don't seem to mind if I haven't washed my clothes for weeks on end.
1: OK, so let's back it up a bit. Eric had been a sick kid. He had asthma and food allergies at a time when country towns didn't stop gluten or lactose-free anything. He spent a lot of time in hospitals having blood tests. And along the way, he developed a terrible fear of injections and medicos in white coats. He point-blank refused to go to a dentist. And at their wits' end, his parents ended up taking him to a dentist who practised hypnosis.
0: I was nine years old when I encountered the dentist. I went to a daytime session just to clean my teeth and... His recommendation was that I come back to have personal sessions with him and that hypnosis would be used to help me overcome my fear of dentists and medical professionals. Sessions began, I think they were at at five o'clock when the practice had shut down for business and the dental assistant had gone home began with me lying on the bed and the dentist pulled out a timepiece and he would basically go through, I guess, what is a stereotypical countdown, telling me that I would be asleep by the time he got to zero. He would rub my forehead, he would rub my chest, he would rub my stomach and then he would rub my Crotch. Then he would unzip my fly, undo my belt, and pull my pants down to my knees. Then he would rub my genitals, and he'd go straight back to my forehead and move back down and repeat the sequence. Hide your eyes
2: and count to 100.
1: About about Eric as a little boy, what was he like?
2: Oh, he was a very happy little soul. He had a really sunny nature. He had beautiful, big brown eyes, very soulful-looking eyes, and he captivated his mother. Eric's mum lives in a flat near her
1: beloved cathedral. It's cosy, decorated with lace tablecloths, religious icons... Photos of her boys and of her late husband. She's warm, loving and gentle. Her smiling eyes are full of all the loveliness that she is.
2: But there's a deep sadness there too. He was fascinated with his older brother. He idolised him. He wanted to follow him around everywhere. Uh, Eric used to say, Bip, bip, gong, on on a big bus. (laughs) They were just gorgeous. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. I was just so proud of them. Love them heaps. <laughs> mm.
0: I, I felt like I had the whole world in front of me, you know? I remember the time when my hometown was my whole world. I remember the first time I walked the block down to the corner shop on my own with my change in hand. I really enjoyed, you know, imaginative play. I'd drive cars all the way around the the backyard and make up stories and pretend I was really little. And uh, I was a fan of Grover, especially Super Grover. He was really cool. <laughs>
2: you rise and count
0: to After two or three months, the sexual nature of the sessions increased in that he would kiss and suck my genitals and reach under me to finger my bottom. I was also starting to feel some of the physical pains that were associated with the abuses. There came a point where I refused to go back and I didn't. Oh, that was the last time I saw a dentist. That was the
2: last time you saw a dentist, yes. Little did we know we entrusted both of our children to a sexual predator and abuser, a considered trusted member in our community. We so loved our children. Sadly, we constantly rude the fact we were far too trusting, even naive at times. The fallout for our violated children is monstrous.
1: It turns out that Eric's older brother was also being abused by the dentist and by the school counsellor at his Catholic high school.
0: My relationship with my brother changed in a very short period of time. The abuse that we were suffering had a, a major impact on the way we related to each other. I remember before the storm my brother was my hero you know. I'd look up to him, I'd follow him around, I'd hustle him. <laughs> However, when the storm began in our lives, things just became very different.
2: Our violated children manifested personality changes. They were manifestly unhappy, but couldn't tell us. And you could tell? Yes, we could see it in their sad eyes then they had a personality change. They became angry and rebellious towards each other and to us. We just couldn't seem to reach them in their pain, and yet we knew things weren't right, but we couldn't put our finger on it.
1: One night when Eric's older brother was in Year 11, he came home and told his parents completely out of the blue that he was moving out with the help of the school counsellor.
2: Your dad continuously phoned to reach the counsellor, whom we call Mr X demanding to know what the heck he was up to. Mr X stated, if we wouldn't agree for our son to go and live with the household that he had arranged, he could go and live with him. It just was horrendous. Your dad became very quiet and uncommunicative. We were absolutely gutted. So indeed was our other son, you... Your deep sadness showed in your eyes and demeanour. We didn't seem to be able to reach you.
0: And it was very shortly after that I met the school counsellor. My brother had warned me against being alone with the counsellor.
1: What did he say?
0: That I should never go into his office and described what the man looked like. So my first year of high school the school counsellor was stalking me. He would turn up in the playground at different times and tell me that he would be able to help me with the difficulties I had at home.
1: Were you having difficulties at home?
0: At that stage no I don't feel so and then one day I was called out of class and that was how he got me. He welcomed me in and closed the door and He asked me to lie on a single bed. I didn't really know what was happening. But when he lay me down and when he pulled a pen out of his pocket and gave me the exact same instructions to follow the pen with my eyes and listen to him count me down into the abuse, it was immediate. He knew what he was doing and I don't remember getting to five.
1: Was there any physical evidence that you'd been abused?
0: I remember one time waking up behind the school chapel with intense heat and intense pain coming from my backside. I remember going to the toilets and finding blood on my underwear and I was about 12... When I had my first case of haemorrhoids, it feels to me like it was part of the hypnosis process that I was told some of the stereotypical things we do here. This is our secret. Don't tell anybody. If you tell anybody, you're the one that'll get into trouble.
1: The school counsellor abused Eric for about three years. The similarities between his and the dentist's techniques were remarkable. Eric and his brother are now convinced they were part of the same network working together to molest young boys.
0: With two of my abusers I was in that much terror that I had accidents, I saw. I was that scared that, that I saw myself during the abuse and I was treated with very acute disgust. One of my abusers called me an animal, which um, I've got a lot of self-image and self-esteem issues because I was rejected even by pedophiles due to something I had no control over. And that just feeds into just how filthy and disgusting I, I am as a person. The impacts reach into every corner of my being and because I'm not allowed to turn my anger or confusion or craziness outwards, the main impact is that I I turn it all in on, on myself and I hate myself so much.
2: Yes, in your latter teenage years, I do recall refusing to wash your underwear and firmly requiring you to do it yourself. Uh, without realising there was an insidious reason behind it all. And I had great issues with him about cleaning his teeth. He would not clean his teeth. And we know why now, don't we? Are you okay? At this point, Eric seems
1: to zone out. (coughs) He's twitching, pinching his leg, picking his sores, and he can't speak. What, uh, hap- what happened then?
0: Uh, Raw. Huh? Roll a smoke. Roll a smart. Rather smart. What, was, was there a quest- was there a question? I'm struggling to, to stay present at the at the at the moment. Um and and struggling to get my mouth to work. (laughs) Uh, I suffer aphasia a a fair bit, so I I have difficulty finding words. My mind knows what my words... (laughs) My, My mind knows what my mouth wants to say, but I can't get my mouth to behave. People probably more often see me picking and eating my scabs, but most of the time I can generally skip the aphasia and and thus avoid some of the more
1: crazy symptoms. I mean, we were in what I would have said was a very loving, open relationship how hard was it for you to keep all that inside then?
0: For the most part, not hard at all. Because it was a, a reasonably bright period of my life in relationship with you, there weren't a lot of symptoms, there weren't a lot of triggers, and I felt generally happy and interactive, both in our relationship and within our social circles. One key symptom that I remember I did have to struggle with and and that was my negative self-talk and and self-abuse. I felt that I wasn't worthy of a relationship that worked. I wasn't worthy of being loved. And I go back to a song by the Beatles, Eleanor Rigby, who puts on the face that she keeps in a jar by the door before she goes out and faces the world. And most of my life I've been pretty good at putting on my face.
1: It's true, Eric was very good at putting on his face. But looking back now I know about the abuse, there were signs. His refusal to clean his teeth, to keep himself and our house clean. The times he would shut down emotionally where I just couldn't reach him. On 360 Documentaries, you're with me, Kirsty Melville, as I wade through the fallout from the storm of childhood sexual abuse experienced by my former partner, the father of my son. During the years Eric was being abused by the counsellor, he was also abused by three priests at a number of altar service camps. This is just one story.
0: The priest called me aside and asked me whether I would tell my parents anything and I told this priest that yeah no I wouldn't tell mum and dad and that we didn't have a very close communicative relationship. That was the wrong response because the uh, next morning I was taken into a classroom with another boy by two priests and we were both asked if we wanted to earn some pocket money. The dare we were given was to walk around until lunchtime with our flies open and our penises outside our underwear. One priest started to show the other boy and reached for his fly and pulled his penis out, and then the second priest... Did the same to me. There was a, uh, a feeling of... Like, it was all a bit of a joke.
1: So they were in on it together?
0: They were in on it together, yes. The priest who took us down to the city led me into the room. He was known to me and my family and it's my clear impression that he actively pimped me out And yes, the abuse went further, I know it went further. It is just something I know.
1: Not long after this camp, when he was just 15, Eric ran away from home.
0: I was very suicidal. I would drink as much as quickly as I could to reach the point of blackout. Another big part of how I felt at the time was my hatred of my parents associated with many of the messages I'd received of them being repressed by religion and too conservative and controlling and that my parents were the abusers.
1: This is coming from a counsellor in a Catholic high school.
0: And priests. By that stage, I had a definite sense of this is your fault and I look back across my home life and that was just definitely not the case. So I packed my bag and hopped on a bus and went to the coast.
2: One Sunday night approximately five years after our first son left the doorbell rang. Standing there was father a priest, the then chaplain for the Antioch group. He proceeded to tell us that our son was unhappy and would be leaving home. Next he retorted, ''What's wrong with you two? It's already happened with...'' Our older son. Next morning I made inquiries with a travel agent. I learnt that our son had booked a bus trip. I waited at the bus station for our son to arrive. I saw him coming with his backpack, his pillow and his teddy bear. He joined the bus. I watched his sad face at the window as the bus drove away. It's deeply etched in my memory. Life without my children had to be undertaken. That priest, that clergyman, who dared to come into our home and berate us. This is the very priest listed in my son's evidence into sexual abuse. Might be Catherine, might, be broom. might
0: be What you you know. do when you know and, uh, yeah, from there I was, I had my own home, I had a job, I had income, I had drugs, I could go and drink whenever I wanted, write myself off as much as I liked. Yeah, I was so grown up at 15, it was awesome, at least that's what I thought at the time for a little while.
1: Now, this is the part I always knew about. When Eric left home, he moved into a caravan park on the coast. One weekend, the old man living next door to him offered him a lift to the beach. He took him to a nudist one.
0: And he said, it's okay that we were born that way and it was natural for us to be naked. So he reached up and grabbed my shorts and and pulled them down to my knees and put his hand on my crotch and I froze, and then I removed his hand.
1: The abuse got progressively worse.
0: One time when he was putting his mouth over my genitals, I uh, experienced soiling myself and the bed, and I told him he needed to leave so there was something in my head that changed that day where I, I stood up and said, no, it's not happening and you need to leave. Sorry, I've got a smoke. The next day I I just needed to tell somebody what was happening to me and I, and I needed it to stop. So I plucked up the courage and I went to the front office and told the woman behind the counter. As soon as I said the words, I was hit in the forehead by a plastic pamphlet holder and started punching me in the head and accusing me of being a liar and told me that I had one week to get out of the caravan park. A couple of days later, I noticed that my neighbour's caravan was empty. So I went and spoke to my friends and they sat me down and told me that he had been evicted from the caravan park, that he was caught sexually abusing the two-year-old girl who lived across the way from us in the caravan park. And, and that's when it, when it hit me. Two, two years old. Two years old and I felt like I'd caused it and I just wanted to die.
1: Why did you feel like you'd caused it?
0: I felt that I should have spoken out as soon as the abuse started. But then my friends, they said that if I didn't speak out, that they wouldn't have worked out that he was abusing other children in the caravan park. And when I processed what that actually meant, that's when my entire life changed. And that's the point where I developed my passion for helping children, for educating children and for child protection. Here comes the rain again. Yeah, the rain started. It, it's, that's how it felt for me. It was like the rain had just come and washed all of my anguish away and gave me purpose. It was the final end to the storm for me.
1: We've just finished a particularly emotional session. It's had a big reaction to that. He's taking himself off for a walk in the bush, in the rain. Not really quite sure what to do, so I'm just standing here in the doorway, watching him and making sure he's okay. It's hard to describe how damaged he is, how much of the old that I knew is gone. When he met me at the airport, I just saw a shell of a man He used to stand so tall and proud and had this long wave of thick and lustrous hair and he was so warm and smiling and positive. It was hard to reconcile that memory of my son's father with the man that I saw standing at the airport who just looked so broken. I knew that this experience of what he calls the project had been devastating to him I knew this but I didn't understand the toll it had taken on him not just emotionally but physically he's just he's aged so much and it's made me think how much he was struggling with all of these issues when we were together when we were a couple and we were parenting and I had no idea there was no sense that anything this traumatic had happened I think I'm quite an intuitive emotionally aware person and I did not pick it And I've I've thought a lot about how things might have been different for him now if he'd been able to tell me how we could have handled it together, and uh, if his life would have been any different. I don't know. I can see him walking back. I think that I might just take him for another walk out over to the dam. Talk about the frogs. He likes to talk about the frogs.
0: Um, yeah, so I don't know what's on the other side of the dam wall, but we'll just sneak up and poke our heads over. There may be wallabies, there may be bird life. Okay, you got a turtle's head, I think. The little black spot there. In the water?
1: Yep. Yeah. Tell me about the frogs.
0: The frogs in this dam are awesome. My friend and I poked our heads over the dam wall to listen to the frog song in the dam. They we were all uh, croaking in time together. I don't know, it was like they were putting on a concert just for us. <laughs> that wasn't too big. <laughs> So this is the time, as soon as the sun goes down, I often go into panic mode. Kind of feels like it's related to the blackout of being in the abuse. As the light fades, I can no longer see what's going on around me. And it always feels like there's something in the shadows. About 2 a.m. in the morning, I'll get the nightmares come. And from there on, I'm just waiting for the sun to rise. And I keep waiting for something to change. And I'm just hoping for that point in this awful swing I'm going through, where I start rising up
1: again. I just worry so much that you're out here on your own with your head just so completely immersed in this, that that's... Hurting more than it's helping?
0: Overwhelmingly, the feelings I have when I'm at home have been peace, security. I love all of the noises and the animals and the birds. I love being in touch with the sky and the stars.
1: What's changed in the last few months?
0: One of my abusers was charged. I've been dealing with Police. I've been dealing with the Royal Commission. I've been dealing with a lot of extreme things. And the stress of knowing that I can't function well enough to pay the mortgage. It just seems that everywhere I turn, everything is hurting such a lot more.
1: Just a small one. So, how would you sleep?
0: Yeah, I don't think I got much sleep at all last night. Have I? Um, I was making a couple, wasn't I?
1: I think that milk might be starting to turn, though. I can't smell anything. But it has been in the icebox for three days. Yeah. Okay, so where
2: do you want to sit?
0: <clears throat> no, I'll sit out the front. i got to go and get your smokes.
2: The former wife of our troubled older son reached me on holiday um, in the late 1990s and asked me to come urgently. I did. I learned for the very first time and for certain that he had been sexually abused. Not long after, when our younger son next came home to visit, I asked him directly, had he also been abused?
0: Oh. Uh- Uh, I think think it was a day that I'd been waiting for since the beginning of the storm. It gave a real sense of validation. Just to be asked made such a big difference. I I guess the key thing that stood out for me was her horror. And I, I, I know it hurt her a lot and that's the balancing game I'm in, you know, finding the balance between telling people the truth and keeping them safe from my emotional trauma. It's difficult to find that balance.
2: My husband, who was a very uh, gregarious, outgoing sort of personality, became non-communicative. He just couldn't handle it. So it was then extra difficult for me because I had no-one to share mine with. How did you cope with that? I think, you know, at times it did take a toll on our marriage, but there was a very important factor, and that was our Catholic faith.
0: So I moved back to live with you at the beginning of the project. Do you have any observations from when I first moved home to care for you and Dad?
2: Yes, you were energetic and helpful, particularly for your Dad in his uh, lack of mobility. You had a lot more energy. As time progressed, you became very morose and distant and seemed to isolate yourself
0: yeah, from memory, does that correspond with when I've started working heavily on the project and, and writing my submissions to the oh, tribunal? Oh,
2: yes, definitely, definitely.
0: And how about the last, <coughs> let's say, year or so?
2: Extreme deterioration, slurred speech, inability to complete a thought or a sentence, a nervous tick, would you call it? Shaking and very, very, very obvious deep depression. I hardly see you, and when I do, it's a very fleeting visit because you don't want to talk about anything. You have said to me, Mum, don't phone me unless you really want something. I don't know where you stay or what you do or when you're coming. You're living in isolation. Have you had an accident? No one would know. I wouldn't know.
0: For for me, the overwhelming emotion I feel is guilt, and I, I've acknowledged how much this project has been hurting you, and I feel guilty when I'm with you because I feel like I've caused you this damage and this pain. It's um, not that I don't want to be with you. It's not that I don't love you. It's not that I don't want to talk mm-hmm. to you. I just. Want the pain to, and the hurting to stop,
2: and I and so do I. I have had to deal with over three decades of guilt for failing to protect my children. I've beat myself with a big stick for so long. You know, have I loved my children? Did I? Did I not love them enough? Why didn't I protect them? Why did I? their mother trust a pedophile operator who abused my children and set off a whole raft of abuse but by saying that I don't want to activate guilt and say I have other expectations of you right now I don't just be you and be my lovely son
0: When we're all quiet, they come right in and get the best grass around the edges.
1: Yeah, I'm surprised how much they come up to the door, actually. We're out for an early morning walk. They're so inquisitive and gorgeous.
0: There were literally, you know, 25 or 30 around the house itself and up close, and you could sit three, three or four metres away from them and they wouldn't be disturbed.
1: Eric's communicating in sign language with the wallabies. Hey, guys, it's OK. Are the wallaby whisperer?
0: Well, how far away are we now? We're about ten metres away from them. And they're just looking at us. And I'll um, do an ear twitch and a scratch and mirror their body language. And they've got to know me pretty well and, and they know that I'm not a, a threat to them. It's weird, eh? Hey? Um, sometimes I just cannot manage the most simple of tasks... Working in childcare, I had to do 20 jobs at once and managed it fine, but at the moment it can be a a simple task. like
1: (laughs) Walking and talking, like you're having trouble processing those really simple things.
0: I really can't do two things at once at the moment, I'm sorry.
1: That's all right, let's pause. (sighs) Did you ever think at all about telling me when we were together? Did you try and tell me and I wasn't open to it?
2: I think
0: it's like most people, you didn't want to hear it on some level.
1: Did for, you try and tell me?
0: I, I honestly don't know.
1: Do you think you could have back then?
0: No, no. no.
1: One of the main um, symptoms or fallouts is your issues with your mouth.
0: Yeah, m- mouth and throat and breathing, I think, are related to body parts that have been put in my mouth and the dentist being such a negative impact early on in the storm.
1: How does it feel for you to clean your teeth?
0: If I put the toothbrush in my mouth, then probably a partner has really asked me repeatedly and forcefully to do it. But so many times I've just rammed the toothbrush through my mouth and rammed it down my throat and done myself some damage and come out bleeding. I've probably averaged cleaning my teeth once a year. There are not many things worse I I can think of at the moment than than having to clean my teeth.
1: I know that was one of the hardest things I found to deal with when we were together, was that issue. And I know that I've screamed at you at times, you you know, can you please just clean your fucking teeth? And I just feel sick when I think about that and what that must have done to you.
0: Yeah, and I feel sick about the fact that I want to love my partner and I can't even kiss her without giving her a mouthful of yuck.
1: (laughs) You know, what about things like not showering?
0: It has come up in nearly every relationship because i've got so many sores so many pickings and burnings on my skin there are uh, blood stains on sheets i've often had difficulty wiping myself after going to the toilet so there's difficulty in confrontation with laundry and those sort of things i've often just thrown clothes out and buy all of my clothes from op shops so that clothes can be worn in a decent state and the ones that aren't, I can just throw out.
1: It seems the more Eric embraces filth, the safer he feels. And if you're wondering how I put up with it, well, I'd just say that he really wasn't this bad when we were together. I mean, he was always grotty, but I just put it down to laziness. It drove me nuts, though, And in the end, although I loved him and always will, it contributed hugely to me falling out of love. If only I'd known.
0: I was expecting it. I was expecting it from the start because I always thought you were way too good for me and I was way too whatever. However, a year later, the impact of it all sort of sent me into a fairly major breakdown. And I've told you this, I spent about six months smacking our boy and I was just trying to tell myself every day, wake up, OK. You've just got to make sure that you love your boy more than you're angry and more than you're afraid. And the, the, the balance was so hard to find some days. <sighs> so when need to do that?
1: I'm talking about the burns on your arm. Yeah. I think you did it last night when you went off into the bush.
0: Yeah, right. With um, a cigarette butt. Yeah, there's two two burns there. It's not a smiley face. Smiley faces are different. Smiley faces where you keep the flame alight on your lighter and get the edge of the lighter really hot and then press it into your arm. But, um, yeah, I've got a long history of burning my arms and then... Uh, Picking the sores. I had an... I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say I don't think I've got an extreme extreme case of... um, What do they call it? Self-harm. Self-harm. Yeah, no. That's a lie. I do have an extensive history of self-harm, but... I don't know how many obvious ones on my arms have I got at the moment. Right arm's got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And left arm's got one, two... What impact has this
1: process had on relationships around you? Can people cope?
0: No. I've had some of my friends say, look, I just don't know what to say to you. I have found this process to be very isolating. I've found a lot of people only want to focus on violence, aggression and fear with comments such as, oh, you need to castrate the bastards and throw them in jail and lock away the key and I don't want to be going forward into my future focused on violence and revenge and aggression. I want to be focused on what works and what's loving to myself and others.
1: To your abusers?
0: <laughs> well, to my abusers. Look, I'm, I'm not speaking out to put my abusers in jail. I'm speaking out to be open and honest about who I am as one individual
1: how did you feel when you found out last year that one of your main abusers had been charged with separate cases of abuses in another state?
0: I was having a very stressful day, obviously, learning that news and there were a range of emotions. Um, one of them, I do remember, is concern for that particular person. I was
1: Concern for your abuser?
0: Yeah, yep. I was afraid that he would go to jail and he would be violently impacted.
1: Were you relieved?
0: Yeah, I was. I felt relieved and I felt validated.
1: Mm. Ah, <laughs> ah, <laughs> God, quiet now. He probably thinks you're talking to him.
0: Ah, <laughs> ah. <laughs> <laughs> Wow! Oh. Yeah, the crows don't respond when you butt in. The boo book owls do. They're awesome. You never see them because they're out at night. But they, they make a call and I call back, and I've had conversations with three or four of them in different locations.
1: <laughs> you can just hear the love Eric has for his home, for its bush and its animals. This project has never been about money. Eric didn't even know he could get compensation as a victim of crime. But his counsellors encouraged him to apply, and when he found out he was eligible for somewhere between 100 dollars and $200,000, he took out a mortgage and bought this property in anticipation of being able to pay it off when it came through.
0: And I felt like I'd been home for the first time since I was a little kid. This place, it just hit me in the heart, but um, then, you know, against... The auditor's advice, legislation was changed. Even though I was already in the system applying for compensation, they made the legislation retrospective. And my potential payout for my eight-year storm is $15,000. So, yeah, I I have to sell my home. (laughs) And then I don't know where I'm going to be. And I don't know how I'm going to find that safe place again where I can actually heal.
1: It's not over yet.
0: I'm, I'm ready to give up. I got all excited hearing about this new pope who talks so openly about his commitment to healing, the scourge that's gone through the church he runs. But I don't think the pope or the cardinal or the bishop or the government can understand the depth of symptom and effect and how traumatic going through these processes is. And I just can't do it anymore. I can't do another three or four years of trying to fight for some safety and security. So, yeah, it kind of feels like that was the last roll of the dice,
2: Over three decades, we've gone from one crisis to another, from one son for a number of weeks, and then something would come undone with another son. It's been quite a journey, believe me. And it's not over yet. I'm now close to 80 years in age and I ask who will be here for my children and for my family when I'm gone. I just don't know how I can keep going. I
0: don't know how I can keep going.
1: It's one day, one day, one day at a time. (sighs) Okay, I'm going to turn this off.